All right, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 2 is where I would like to first direct your attention today. We've been doing an Old Testament survey with our adult Sunday school class, and so my mind is in the Old Testament. And last week, we took a look at Balaam, a very interesting person, a very fascinating story in the book of Numbers. This week, we're moving ahead many years in the history of God's people to the time of Samuel. And I wanted to share with you today this story of the capture of the ark in 1 Samuel 4 through 7. But we're going to be starting here in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Now, before we jump into the text, I have some thoughts that'll get us going in the right direction to be able to understand what God is teaching us through the capture of the ark in 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 7, and that is the subject of true religion and false religion. The word religion has sometimes gotten a bad connotation attached to it because people think of religion just merely as a man-made thing. A lot of people have had bad experience with man-made religion as people create a system of worship of God that is not really functioning to worship God, but is instead functioning to give power and influence to the people who are in charge of the religion. And of course, that's not the purpose of religion, to give people power and influence or money. But there are many false workers, many false religions where people abuse religion for their own purposes. And so religion comes to have a bad connotation. However, there is such a thing as true religion. And if you look up the word religion in the dictionary, one of the definitions you might find is the service and worship of God. And of course, there's nothing wrong with the service and worship of God when it is done in truth. And what we have in the Holy Bible is true religion. It is the self-revelation of the God who has created this world that we live in so that we might be able to serve him and worship him in a way that is acceptable to him for his honor, for his glory, not for the exaltation of any religious man. So God's revelation is religion, the only true religion. And the Israelites, they were blessed to be God's chosen people, to receive the word of God, to receive the revelation of God's own character and nature through the Torah, through the law of Moses, They were in a very privileged position to have God's presence with them as a nation. That's really what the Ark of the Covenant was to symbolize among the people of Israel, that God was dwelling with his people. It was called the Ark of his presence, and it was in the tabernacle of the Lord where the Ark was to be kept, so that God had a tent, he had an address among the people of Israel, and that this is the one place in the world where there was true religion, where there was to be the worship and service of God. However, we find that Israel perverted their religion and twisted it into falsehood, and that they failed to serve and worship God the way that God had commanded them to do so. And that's the tragedy of the history of Israel that we have recorded in the book of Judges, which comes right before First and Second Samuel, and continues here, sadly, at the beginning of First Samuel. If you take a look at First Samuel chapter 2, I want you to read with me verses 12 through 17. I'll read them out loud. You follow along in your Bible. 
And here we find that the sons of Eli, Eli being the priest who is serving in the tabernacle at this time in Israel, the sons of Eli were worthless men. And you can kind of figure out what the Bible means when it calls someone a worthless man. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. You see here that the priesthood has grown corrupt that God created the priesthood, he created the sacrificial system for the people of Israel, for his honor, for his glory, and for the benefit of the people of Israel to be able to worship God because it is so good for us to honor and worship the Lord. And yet, the priesthood had corrupted it because of their own selfish and evil desires so that they weren't functioning according to God's instructions, but they were doing things that were in their benefit and for themselves. This is the sad state of how religion gets twisted and corrupted by evil men for selfish reasons, not out of love for God or love for their neighbor. And we find that in this time period, the time period in which Samuel was born and he was being raised, that not only the priesthood but the people of Israel were also corrupt. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. This is where we're going to end up this morning in chapter 7, but I want you to see it here at the beginning. In 1 Samuel 7, 3 and 4, Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So we see here from these verses that the people of Israel were also steeped in idolatry. So yes, they had the tabernacle and there were people who would go and worship the Lord at the tabernacle according to the law, but the priesthood was corrupt at the tabernacle. But not only did they have the corrupt priesthood at the tabernacle, they also had all their idols throughout the land. You see that they've got the Baals, the foreign gods, Ashtaroth. This people of Israel are involved in all kinds of false religion. What one writer has said I think is very apt on Israel during the period of the judges Samuel starts at the latter end of this period of Judges, Samuel being the last judge of the people of Israel, that this is a record of the Canaanization of the Israelites, that the Israelites become like the Canaanites more and more, generation after generation, going away from their early faithfulness to the Lord underneath the leadership of Moses and Joshua and becoming more and more like the nations that God was going to destroy out of the land of Canaan. So it's a dire situation, very dark days for the people of Israel here at the beginning of 1 Samuel. With that introduction in mind, let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 4, and we're going to look at one of the most fascinating and entertaining histories in the Old Testament, the capture of the Ark of Israel by the Philistines. 
We pick it up there in chapter 4, verse 1. I would like to read the first three verses. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. We can stop there for now. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the Philistines. The Philistines were not a Semitic people. They were not from the land of Palestine or further east. No, they were from the west. They were from the Mediterranean. And they had sailed across the Mediterranean, for whatever reason, to try to find a new homeland. And they had first gone towards Egypt. But Egypt was still too strong, still too powerful at the time that the Philistines were migrating. And so they had to turn aside from Egypt and they ended up settling along the western coast of the land of Palestine to the west of the Israelites. And the Philistines built five major cities. They had Ashdod, they had Eshkelon, they had Ekron, they had Gath, and they had Gaza. And those are all recorded in 1 Samuel 6.17 as the five cities of the Israelites. But they had minor settlements as well. And Aphek was one of those minor settlements that was five miles east of the Mediterranean, about 10 miles west of Shiloh. Shiloh is where the Ark of the Covenant was. The tabernacle of God rested at Shiloh. And Aphek was at the northeastern edge of the Philistine lands. So the Philistines are gathering for battle against the Israelites. They're at Aphek there at the edge of their lands. The Israelites are encamped at Ebenezer. And then they go out into the field and battle and Israel is defeated. They lose 4,000 men in the first skirmish between the armies. Now, this is going badly for the Israelites, and so let's continue with the reading. Let's start back in verse 3, okay? Verse 3 starts off, And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So, they get together, they are asking the right question. The right question is, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Notice that the elders are thinking in a godly manner. They're recognizing that the Lord is their God and that the Lord is powerful and that the Lord is control. They're remembering how the Lord, Yahweh, had given them victory over their enemies in the past. And so now they're wondering, well, what's the problem here today? We're going out to battle and we're defeated the Lord is not on our side, so they've got the right diagnosis here. However, so often, as is true with mankind, people are better at diagnosing problems than they are at solving problems. Diagnosis is important. You've got to start with the right diagnosis, but sometimes the solution to the problem is trickier than diagnosis. And we find out that while the elders of Israel are good in diagnosing that the Lord has caused us to be defeated, their solution to that problem is not good religion. It's false religion. That they are somewhat thinking along good religion, but they're mixing it together. They've been canonized. They're starting to think like the pagan nations around them instead of according to God's word. And so they think that if they go and bring the ark of God from Shiloh into the camp of their army, that then that will mean that God will be on their side and that they'll win the battle. This is viewing God 
as some kind of force that can be manipulated just through external actions. This is a a serious problem with false religion. False religion doesn't focus on the problem of the human heart. Instead, false religion, instead of repenting of sin and seeking the Lord with all the heart, it looks for some mechanism, something that I can do that is going to get God on my side. And that's not the way religion works. Religion is always a matter of the heart. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And so they should have said, what's wrong with our hearts? What sin is in our hearts? What rebellion against the Lord is in our heart that we need to get rid of so that God will come and fight for us? But they don't do that. Instead of diagnosing the problem as the heart, they say, well, God's not with us, so let's go get the ark. And if we bring the ark in, it'll function like a magic talisman. And that magic talisman will bring supernatural power into our lives. People still make this same mistake today. They think, well, if I call this ministry and they send me this handkerchief that has been prayed over, then this handkerchief is going to bring God's blessing into my house because there's this physical thing that I can do that's going to bring God on my side. That's not how God works. You can't manipulate God by doing actions. Many people make this same mistake on a Sunday morning. They say, well, if I go to church and I sing the songs and I put an offering in the offering box and I take communion and I hear the word of God preached, then God will be on my side. God doesn't work that way. It's not some action that you do. It's your heart. Your heart needs to be changed. That's true religion, but that's not what the Israelites understood. They thought, well... If we just do the right thing, this mechanical action, then we'll get the results. God's not a vending machine. You don't just put the quarters in, push the button, and get what you want. God is always a matter of the heart. So that is the key problem that we're going to see that leads to disaster for the Israelites. And it's here for us, for a warning, so that we do not become false religion. We do not fall into the trap of externalism and thinking, well, just because I did the external action, I'm okay. No, it's not an external action. It's a matter of the heart. Now, let's continue on with the story then. Let's see what happens. So they bring the ark. The people sent to Shiloh in verse 4. And they brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Now you remember Hophni and Phinehas. You remember the sons of Eli. What did we hear about them? They're worthless men. They're worthless men. These are not holy priests. These are not men who fear God. And there's more I could tell you about them, but we're going to try to keep the service PG here this morning. Continue then in verse 5. They've got the Ark of the Covenant. They've got the priests. And as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And so they probably have some spies that are close to the camp of the Israelites and the spies come back and they're like, what, what was that big shout about over there? And the spies tell them, they say, the ark of the Lord has come to the camp and the Philistines were afraid for they said, a God has come into the camp and they said, woe to us for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Okay, so 
Let's stop there. The Philistines, they are Canaanized in their thinking. They have false religion. And so they think that God functions like a magic talisman. And so they assume the same thing that the Israelites have assumed, that when you bring this religious object into the camp, that that means that you've brought God into the camp. And now, man, it really looks bad for us. And so far, so good. It looks like morale is greatly improved among the Israelites. They think that they're going to win. The Philistines are terrified. They think that they're going to lose. Maybe this is all going to work out. Maybe false religion sometimes works just because of the placebo effect. You know, God isn't really there, but they think that God is there. And so, good for them. But God has a way of doing what he wants and he overrides the placebo effect in this case. You would think Israel's got good morale, the Philistines are terrified, they're probably going to win. Nope, that's not how it's going to go. Read the next verse. Instead of running away afraid, the fear that the Philistines feel is turned into a ferocious resolve. The Philistines say in verse 9, Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And so the Philistines fought like crazy. And Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Well, that didn't go very well. Bad ideas have bad consequences. False religion has bad consequences. They had a good diagnosis of the problem, a terrible solution to that problem, and they paid the price. God made sure that they paid the price. This is a lesson for Israel. It's a lesson for us. How important that we hear this. Now, 4,000 had died in the first skirmish back in verse 2. Now 30,000 more have died in this second battle. Things have gone from bad to worse. And beyond that, now the ark of God is captured by the enemies of Israel. And their priests have been killed. Let's read about how the godly priest Eli responds to this and how his family feels the pain of this terrible situation in verses 12 through 22. Now we haven't talked much about Eli yet, but you can read about him in the opening chapters of 1 Samuel And so, pick it up in verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. Eli's got a sense that this is not good. The Israelites came and got the ark to take it into battle. And he's just thinking, I don't know. I'm afraid for the ark of God. Notice he's not so much afraid for his sons, but he's afraid for the ark of God. And so he's trembling. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did, how did it go, my son? And he brought the news and answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. 
As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for her pains come upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So the Bible does a great job of making it personal and showing the individual picture and the portrait. It tells you about how all the city was in an uproar, but then it shows you the death of Eli and the death of his daughter-in-law and just how hard-hitting this news was for the people of Israel. This is a great tragedy, perhaps one of the greatest tragedies they'd ever experienced. This shows us the futility of false religion. When we try to manipulate the machinery of God instead of faith in God, repentance in God, then there are disastrous consequences for time and for eternity. I want you to turn with me to another passage that's very similar to this in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7. See, the people of Israel make this mistake repeatedly throughout their history, and it's one we have to learn from. And the church has made this mistake repeatedly. We haven't done a very good job learning from it. I'm speaking about Christianity in general. But hopefully you will not make this mistake and you will stay away from this false religion, this deterioration of the truth that God has given to us into superstition and magic and ritual. That's not religion. We come to Jeremiah chapter 7. I'd like to read for you the first, well, let's read a lot. We're going to read the first 26 verses. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. So now we're hundreds of years in the future. We are in the time of Jerusalem. We're coming to the end of the divided kingdom of Israel, the end of the city of Jerusalem before it's destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet who lives through all of this. But we're early in the book, and Jerusalem hasn't been destroyed yet. And so Jeremiah comes, and he stands in the gate of the Lord's house, the temple in Jerusalem. He proclaims the word to everyone who's coming to worship the God of Israel, Yahweh. And he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered! 
only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Just like the tabernacle at Shiloh, a den of robbers, Eli's sons, worthless men, stealing from the offerings of the Lord. It happened at Shiloh. It happened to the temple of Solomon in Jeremiah's time. And it happened to the temple in Jerusalem in Jesus' day also. Jesus preached the same message. The same spirit that was in Jeremiah was preaching the same thing 600 years later to the people of Israel after the temple had been rebuilt. And once again, they didn't listen. They trusted in deceptive words and they said, this is the temple of God. God would never allow it to be destroyed. We are his people. And they didn't repent. Continue. Verse 12. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh. Sound familiar? Where I made my name dwell at first and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust. They don't trust in the Lord. They're trusting in the house. They didn't trust in the Lord. They trusted in the ark. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name in which you trust and to the place that I gave you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. See, Ephraim's already gone into exile. They've already been cast out of the land. As for you, verse 16, do not pray for this people. God tells Jeremiah, stop praying for them. Don't lift up a cry or a prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women ned dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. You know what the Catholics call Mary? The queen of heaven. They make the same mistake and it's so obvious. It's so obvious. They're trusting in the externals of religion. We've got the Lord's table. We've got the Lord's table. We've got the sacraments. We've got the sacraments. And think about all the centuries of people trusting in the church, trusting in the sacraments, trusting in the ritual, and then just going on with their unrepentant lives, lying and stealing and murdering, acting oppressively towards the poor. The sacraments won't save you. The church won't save you. Don't trust in those deceptive words. Hear the word of Christ and repent and return to the Lord with all your heart. Stop trying to manipulate the machinery of God and listen to Jesus. Listen to his teaching. Obey what he says. With your whole life, your whole heart. That's repentance. God says there's a time where we're not even supposed to pray for people anymore. They pour out these drink offerings to other gods. They provoke me to anger. Verse 19 Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, 
add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave them, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but they walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward from the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day. I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them, like Samuel, day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. It just got worse and worse every generation. So you speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. And you shall say to them, This is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. Well, we can stop there. Let's go back to 1 Samuel. That's the biggest disaster of all. The destruction of the nation, the death of hundreds of thousands, the burning of the temple, the capture of all the articles of the temple. But this is a preview. Here we have the preview in 1 Samuel where the ark of God is captured and you've got 44,000 dead on the battlefield because they are trusting in the same man-made religion, the same idolatrous heart, instead of hearing the voice of the Lord and finding repentance. I just want you to see the futility of false religion. The people were convinced that they had brought God into their camp and that God was now on their side and they had to be shown that they were wrong. They had to be shown that that is not how God works. But now what's God going to do? What's God going to do for his great name now that the Philistines have conquered, they've triumphed in battle and they've got the ark of God? I mean, this is a humiliation for God. All the Philistines are going to say, you know what? We weren't able to conquer the Egyptians, but you know what we did do? We conquered the God who conquered the Egyptians. Remember all those stories, all that history about how the God of Israel, he defeated Pharaoh and his armies, and, and now look at us. We got him. We captured their God. Because that's how they thought of it. They were thinking in the same way, that if you've got the ark, you've got God. And we got the ark. We've got their God. They think they've taken a prisoner of war, the God of Israel. So what's God going to do? Well, as we see on the second point of our outline, God's going to defend his name. That's what he's going to do. God can take care of himself. That's one of the great things about being God. So, pick up the story there in chapter 5, verse 1. Now, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. So, what do you do with a holy object? You put it in a holy place. What's our holy place? Well, the temple of Dagon. Now, you might wonder, who was Dagon? He was the head of the Philistine pantheon. He was the father of Baal. So, the father of Baal. I mean, this guy's pretty important. Dagon, his idol, had the lower body of a fish and the upper body of a man. Remember, the Philistines were a sea people. They traveled across the Mediterranean. They did all their stuff on the sea. So, of course, their god is a half-fish, half-man type of thing. And they do this to demonstrate, they bring the ark of God into the temple of Dagon to demonstrate that Dagon has defeated God 
And now God is like a vassal to Dagon. This is what kings would do in the ancient world. You capture the enemy king, you bring him back to your palace, and you make him a servant in your palace. You're the big king, you got the little king. That's what they're doing here with God. Our God's the big God, here's his captured servant. This inflated their national pride. They thought God of Israel was not able to withstand their God, Dagon. And so God communicates to the Philistines in terms they can understand. There's no prophet among the Philistines. They wouldn't listen to him anyway. So God has a way of communicating to them. Let's continue reading. Pick it up in verse 3. So they set up the ark beside Dagon. And verse 3 says, When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. God says, Okay, you think that I'm captured? You think that I'm subservient to Dagon? Well, here's Dagon falling down to worship before the ark of the Lord. God just toppled their idol over in the night. And so they're like, oh, well, we better stand him back up again. We better help our God out. He can't stand up on his own. We've got to do it for him. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. All better. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all those who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. And verse 6, God continues to speak to the people of the Philistines in a language they can understand. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, Uh, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against that city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people! They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So, the Philistines, they're pagans, they're very superstitious. God speaks to them in terms they can understand. He shows that Dagon is inferior to him, and he also shows that you cannot hold me. And if you continue to have my ark in your cities, then you will die. And they're getting the message. They're slow to get the message. At first, they are thinking like regular pagans, and they think, well, maybe if we move the ark of God someplace else, then God won't be able to afflict us the way he was able to over here. Because the superstitious people thought that gods had certain power in certain places, and there were other gods who had certain power in other places. You know, you had the god of the sea, and you had the god of the land, and the god of the hills and the mountains. So they're like, well, let's just try a different city and see if that solves the problem. And of course, that doesn't solve the problem because God is the God of everywhere. They don't know that, but that's their lesson to learn here. And they 
are slow to learn, but eventually they get the message. I love it how they bring the ark to the third city, and the people are like, no, don't bring it here. We don't want to happen to us what happened to you guys. So they all get together, and what do we do? They're like, yeah, obviously the ark has to go back. That's the plan. But they still have one more test for God. See, the unbeliever is always testing God. He's slow to acquiesce to what God is trying to teach him. Only when God forces the person does he say, okay, I'll do what you say. They push and test as much as possible. So the the Philistines have one more test for the God of Israel, and that is described here in chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? So they call their holy men, their priests, their diviners. These are the people that they have to consult. They're in the darkness. They don't know the Lord, but it's all they have. And so their priests and diviners are asked to tell us with what. What do we send with the ark when we send it back to its place? We know we've got to send it, but the pagans think, well, we've got to offer some kind of offering to appease the gods, and so we kind of have to buy off the gods. So what should we send with it when we send it back? It's kind of like say, God, we're sorry. And so the priests, the diviners, they come up with this idea. If you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you shall be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the numbers of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Now this is the first mention of the mice that we just heard reference to the tumors and people were dying. And this reference to the mice probably indicates that the disease that was causing the tumors was being spread by mice. And so God sends these diseased mice into their cities and they're getting the disease from the mice and they recognize that this is a plague from God, much like the plagues that were on Egypt back in the time of the Exodus. So they make golden images of God's judgment. Now this is not a completely bad idea. Remember back in the book of Numbers, the people of Israel were in the wilderness. They grumbled against God, and God sent fiery serpents among them that would bite them, and they'd get poisoned and die. And so when they repented, God said, make an image of a golden serpent and put it on a staff. And when people look at the serpent, then they will... Oh, it was bronze serpent. Pardon me. They look at the bronze serpent, they'll be healed and won't die after a snake bite. So making an image of God's judgment and wrath is something that God has done in the past. And in fact, some people have pointed out that the cross is the image of God's judgment and wrath. And so we remember the cross and we look to the cross as where God's judgment and wrath is atoned for by the sacrifice of Christ. But all of that aside, they send back a guilt offering with the ark according to the advice of their holy men. Pick it up again there in verse 6. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? So they, they know about what God did to Egypt. This is not a forgotten event. This was huge in the ancient world. The Philistines are still talking about it hundreds of years later about how Pharaoh would not repent, but he kept on hardening his heart and judgment after judgment kept coming. And they're like, we don't want that. We don't want to push it and have God continue to destroy us. So don't harden your hearts. Send it back. Send it with the offering. 
This is pretty good advice. And God had dealt severely with the Egyptians, and they didn't send the people away, and then they departed. Now then, take and prepare a new cart. Here's the final test. Take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows, on which there was never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. So you've got cows that have never been yoked, cows that have calves at home, And the reason why they're doing this is because they want to test and see whether or not this has all come from God. And that'll become clear. I should just keep reading. So it says in verse 8, Take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a gold box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way. And watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is God, he, who has this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that has struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. So they're still saying, well, maybe this is just a coincidence. And so we got one more test to see whether or not these judgments really came from God. Now, it's obvious that the judgments came from God. You've got Dagon falling down and his hands cut off. What more evidence do you want? But that's the way people are. They always want more evidence. Always one more test. So the men did so in verse 10. They took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box and the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. So the Lord says, okay, test accepted. The cows are going to walk straight towards Beth Shemesh. They're going to be lowing as they go because this is what, apparently, I'm not a rancher, apparently this is what cows do when they're sad and their cows are sad because they're walking away from their babies that are back in their stalls. They don't want to go, but the Lord is making them go, and so they low as they go. And so God has the cows under control and he has the ark under control and it's going exactly where God wants it to go. Now, Israel is going to be the recipient of this ark. Let's see how they do in getting the ark of God back. Verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. So far, so good, I think. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures. So there's Levites throughout Israel. There's Levites that live in Beth Shemesh. They're the ones who are supposed to be in charge of the holy things. So they take down the ark and the golden box, and they set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, the five cities of the Philistines. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. And the great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. But notice verse 19. 
And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From that day, the ark has lodged at Kiriath-Jerim. A long time passed, some 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So there seems to be some repentance coming to the people of Israel. God has taught the Philistines a lesson. He's taught the Israelites a lesson. And now it's time for Samuel to step in and to teach the people true religion. God sends judges, Samuel being the best judge that they ever had, to lead the people back to God and to establish true religion. That's our third point in our outline. It would only take a minute to look at it there, starting in Samuel 7, verse 3. So Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord. Your heart, right? The heart of the matter is always the matter of the heart. And serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and the people of Israel heard of it, and they were afraid of the Philistines. But then Samuel prays for them, and God delivers them because they have turned to the Lord, and Samuel has showed them that true religion is not a matter of ritual, not a matter of the externals, but it's a matter of hearing God's word and responding in faith, and repentance, and that was where the blessing comes then upon the people of Israel in the days of Samuel. And thus it is ever. You don't get blessed by coming to church. You don't get blessed by listening to sermons. You get blessed by hearing the word of God and believing it in your heart. And if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, then you will be saved. For if the heart man believes... And with the mouth he confesses. And that's true religion.